I hope that you enjoyed the Abraham series, which is a series we just got out of, and we're in for about eight or nine weeks there. Uh, I know that it stretched me a bunch to have a lot more faith and a lot more trust in God and just in who God is uh, and what God is doing. And so here in this section, what we're going to be mainly looking at is how God kind of molds or mends or uh, uh, puts back together brokenness or corruption or really just sort of messed up things. And so we're going to look at Abraham's lineage, and those are the people who are going to carry out the very promise of God. If you remember from Abraham, there was three promises that uh, Israel would gain a land, that the nations would be blessed by Abraham, and that Abraham would have many descendants. And so this is important for us because Hebrews tells us that that land is an even greater land than just a land promise, but we're looking forward to heaven, that uh, we want to be blessed by being children of Abraham, and we want to be his seed because those are children of faith, children that uh, enter into the promise of God. And so it's important that the promise of God gets carried out, and what we're going to look at is how it gets carried out in some really suspect individuals and characters, okay? And so Abraham, we saw some ups and downs, but as we landed that series, we saw, man, Abraham was really molding into a man of faith. Like the last three chapters, Abraham uh, exposes this faith in beautiful ways, and now all of a sudden we enter into uh, his sons and his grandsons. If you think that the Bible is filled with a bunch of heroes, then this series is going to really alter your mind in that, all right? Uh, it'll be a nice, uplifting section. So um, in seriousness, I hope it is uplifting because what we'll see is God frequently chooses to use broken things and broken people. In my mind, it's because that actually probably glorifies him the most. It's like if everything was perfect, then we would think, oh, maybe that's man. But when God begins to use men like the men we're going to read about today, man, God must be a strong and a powerful God, and it must mean that he can also use us even in our brokenness and even in our messed up lives. And so the consequences of sin are real, as we'll see, but God is able to overcome even that. And so that's the pace that we're going for this series. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, Genesis chapter 27 is where we'll be for pretty much the whole day. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair around you. Please feel free to take and keep that. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God, be able to read it. You can also follow along on your smartphone. Underneath the Uversion app, uh, click on uh, events, type in the well Austin. You can follow along that way. Or you could take this link and put it right into your browser. You can follow along that way as well. We want your eyes on the word, and so we try to uh, allow as many opportunities to see that. So just a quick summary uh, so that we know the story that we're covering today. Uh, if you were in groups last week, you saw how Abraham uh, led his servant to go get a wife for his son Isaac. And hopefully through that, you learned a lot about relationships and how God uses relationships, but really what I hope you saw is God's sovereignty there, that God is kind of over, he's in control, he knows what he's doing, and so Isaac finds a wife, Rebecca. From that story, we see in chapter 25, the passing away of Abraham, and we also see the birth of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, or Abraham's grandsons. So Isaac is painted as an actually pretty faithful character because his wife, Rebecca, is also barren like her mother was Sarah. And so uh, they cannot have kids. And we actually see Isaac praying for these two kids for 20 straight years. Now, real talk, 
Like, if my prayer doesn't get answered in, like, 20 days, then I'm kind of done with it, right? But, like, he's praying for 20 years, and so he's a faithful man, but he had some of the same sins as his father, right? He lied about uh, Rebecca being his wife, probably learned that from his daddy, and so, like, father like son in some ways. However, uh, like we saw in the sermon last week, what began to happen to Isaac is slowly but surely his faith began to get unraveled, and Isaac, who was originally this really faithful character kind of lands, as we'll see today, as a really faithless man. In fact, it would be hard for us to be able to see God interacting in his life at all. Like, and so we see the importance of clinging to God because as Abraham sort of kept going up in his faith, Isaac kind of kept going down in his faith. And we talked about last week the danger that it is for us to enter into that. Furthermore, we see in his sons, Jacob and Esau, a lot of their negative character. Esau, in chapter 26, he sells his birthright to uh, to. to, to Jacob, because Jacob kind of tricks him. And so we see Jacob, the trickster or the deceiver, his name literally means heel grabber, which was uh, kind of an idiom of sorts of like somebody who is just kind of a dirty person, right? He's going he's gonna to maneuver his way into blessing in some ways. And Esau is seen as a really clueless person who's willing to give up all of his inheritance because he wants some soup. That's lame, all right? Like, you can laugh at that, okay? Because this is not the, the man that we're supposed to see. And so uh, God, in his providence, in his uh, 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 divine foresight, he tells Rebekah and their family that Jacob is going to end up taking forth the promise of God. That it's supposed to be Jacob who's going to carry forth this Abrahamic covenant Right? But Esau's the older one, and so that usually doesn't happen. It's usually the older that comes through. And so this is where we start off today, okay? There's all this family stuff going on, and what you're going to see really quickly is that this family is kind of like a really, really bad like soap opera. All right. There's all of these movements and all of these parts, and in reality, they're all kind of doing weird things with and for each other, and it's just really awkward, okay? And so it really is supposed to read uh, almost as a sort of sad comedy in some ways, all right? And so that's the text that we're in today. So um, I said 27, but we're going to read the last two verses of chapter 26 to get us started. So 26, 34 through 35. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the wife of Berai, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So just a quick side note here. This is meant to flag a warning in our minds for the next chapter. The, the plot of the story, the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of God is going to pass down through one of these two sons. And we see immediately God in Genesis 25 said it was supposed to be Jacob, Jacob's the younger one one. However, God knows what he's doing, okay? Furthermore, though, we see that Esau is probably not really fit to carry out the promises of God. So Esau is a man who is making life bitter for his parents, is a man who is marrying foreign women, which in that culture, if you married somebody, you often adopted their religion as well. And so Esau is not following the religion of his father or of his grandfather, but instead he's following a a Hittite or a foreign, a pagan religion. So he doesn't even believe in God. And so what this verse is meant to do is kind of flag a warning in our head and say, hey, Esau is not ready to take the promises of God, right? He's not even following God. How can he carry forth the promises of God? He's making life bitter for his parents. He probably shouldn't be the one running pace here, okay? So that's the context of our story. Here we go, verse one. 
When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his oldest son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac wants to bless Esau anyway, right? So, so Esau's already proven that he's probably not a good character, and Isaac already has this promise of God that is going to be Jacob. However, Isaac kind of ignores all that, and he wants to bless his eldest son, Esau, anyway. Now, normally, you do bless the older son, and so he might be operating, uh, operating out of natural desires or something like that, but Isaac should have immediately recognized Jacob's spiritual unsuitability, but instead, he sits here and tries to bless him. Why? Because he loved his food. That's lame, <laughs> okay? Like, like, for sure, there are things to, that, that are tempting. There are things that are hard for us to follow God in. But I mean, really? Like, like would you sin against the Lord for a really good steak? Let's be real. I might sin in a really small way, all right? But like in a colossal way, like a way like this, like, like would you sin against the Lord for some really good food? Like, man, my wife is a good cook, but Esau must have been like Gordon Ramsay or something, right? Like, he loved his food. That's why he wanted to bless him. What a lame reason to bless somebody, okay? And so immediately, we're supposed to kind of half chuckle, half be like saddened by that. Like, this is the son of Abraham. What, what is going, the faithful man that prayed, what is going on here, right? Isaac's physical blindness is also supposed to kind of highlight for us his actual spiritual blindness, Often throughout the scripture, when you see a physical problem that is highlighted, it's also talking about their spiritual problem at the same time. You see this all the time throughout the scriptures. And so Isaac is, in a lot of ways, not just physically blind, as in verse 1, but he's very clearly, and you'll see as the story goes on, he's very clearly spiritually blind as well. He can't even see how he is disobeying God here. Furthermore, we see Isaac's sin because he calls Esau in in private. Right? He says, Esau, come here. Okay? And then Esau comes, and it's just Esau and Isaac. And when you're about to give forth your blessing, which uh, is half prophecy, but also half like will and testament, when you're about to give, here's my will, you do it in public so that there's no dispute. So that nobody can say, no, 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 wait a minute. My father said he's going to give me this. You, you do it before all people, but he's calling Esau in in private so he knows what he's doing. Like he's conscious that he probably shouldn't be doing this, but he calls him in and tries to bless him in private. The word narrative, or uh, in this narrative, the word game is used eight times, okay? And the word food is used six times. And that phrase, such that I love, is used three times in the narrative, which is almost solely used in a provocative sense between a man and a woman who have sexual romantic relationships throughout the rest of the scripture. So it's not just like, I really like this food. It's like, there's something that is arousing about this food to me. It is a sensual passage. It's kind of a strange passage, actually. And it's mentioned over and over again. So it's supposed to halfway make us uncomfortable, even. Isaac is a sensual man. He's leaning on his senses rather than his spirit. And this is how he's trying to follow the will of the Lord. Here comes your hero, Abraham's son. 
Right? Like, like what's happening here, okay? Now the noun uh, blessing is used seven times and the verb blessed or to bless is used 21 times. And so we see what's happening in the story. The, 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 the promise is about to be carried on. The blessing of God is about to pass through and Isaac is leaning on his senses rather than on the spirit. And so immediately we see the ability for this to go really, really badly, right? Like the promise of God may get messed up. And if you are longing for the promise of God, which we should, verse 4, we should kind of pause and be deeply concerned, right? Like, like is the promise going to carry through? Or is Isaac and Esau going to squander it in some ways because Esau, or, or Isaac is ready to give to Gordon Ramsay Esau the blessing of God? Right? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it in, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, or before, the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. As you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats, so that, or, and the skins of the young goats, she put on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Oh shoot, drama, right? So here comes Rebecca and Jacob, and they're scheming, right? Dirty, okay? Like they're scheming against their father in many ways. We see several individual things happening here. First of all, we see that uh, uh, an immediate family disunity is happening. In verse 5, Rebecca is almost like seen like at the door, like with her ear against the door, kind of listening for what, what, what uh, Jacob is telling Esau, right? She's not a part of this conversation, but she's definitely trying to overhear this conversation. And she overhears it enough to kind of repeat what's happening. She knows what's going on. So rather than working together, they're scheming against each other. They did not learn from their parents, Abraham and Sarah, because frequently you actually see them working together as a family unit. In Genesis 16, 5 through 6, they're discussing what they need to be doing. In Genesis 21, 8 through 14, Abraham and Sarah are wrestling with the will of God and what they should be doing. So they were working together, but here you see disunity. They're, they're separated. They're not working together because of their lack of trust in God's plan, their lack of faith in what God is calling them to to do and just their sheer disobedience, there's creating all of this tension and all of this disunity in between the family. We also see this disunity because in verse 5, Esau is called Isaac's son, but in verse 6, Jacob is called Rebekah's son, as if like one parent adopted one and one parent adopted the other, right? That is disunity. There's brokenness. It's kind of like whenever Micaiah does something bad, I'm like, Natalie, get your daughter. 
right? I like disown her for a second because something bad is happening, which let's be real. Whenever she's doing something bad, it's usually she's imitating what I tend to be like. And so if anything, she's really my daughter then. But like there's that disassociation. There's, there's favoritism that's being played out here because one likes one and one likes the other and they're not even owning their other sons. Like it's Esau and Jacob each get an individual parent. So Rebecca then is shown as manipulative. She's about to deceive her husband Isaac. But then in comes our new hero, Jacob, all right, who we're going to be studying for the next several weeks here. All right, this is our first introduction to him. He steps onto the scene. And what does he say in verse 12? All right, cool, I'll do it. That's our hero, okay? And so like, uh, like, like son, like mother, is that how that goes? Something like that, right? Like they're doing the same thing, okay? And we see this immediately happening. Jacob is literally fine with the plan. He doesn't really care about the, the immoral nature of the plan. He just doesn't want to get caught, right? So that's the only thing he's concerned about is like, I'm not trying to get caught here. In fact, verse 11 calls him a smooth man, which in irony is the same Hebrew idiom as used in our culture, like a smooth talker, right? Like somebody who, who can slide in and out of situations, like, like they can talk themselves out of trouble, like an O.J. Simpson or something, right? And so this is Jacob who we have here. He's a, a smooth man. And this is supposed to be indicative of his character as well. On top of all of this, Rebecca literally invokes a curse upon herself if Jacob were to get caught. She's so willing to kind of manipulate the situation that she's willing to bring great danger on himself. And so they get the clothes, which, small irony, twice in scripture, Jacob himself is then later deceived by clothing. We'll read both of these stories, but Jacob accidentally sleeps with Leah instead of Rachel because she was covered in clothes and you couldn't see her. Later on, his favorite son, right, uh, Joseph, is sold by his brothers into slavery, and they come back with what? Clothing, and say, your son is dead. Here's his garments. What is the scripture showing us? You reap what you sow in some ways. The consequences of sin are real, okay? And so twice this kind of falls back upon his head, but they're going to use this clothing, use this speech, use this food to try to manipulate the blessing of God in some ways, which, can we be real for a second? They're about to put goat hair on my man's, all right? How hairy is Esau? Like, is he using like a Rogaine on his hands and his neck, right? Like, and so that's what's happening. Here's the scene. And so the question that we get asked is like, are they gonna get caught? Like, is the curse going to fall on the son that God said was supposed to be the blessed son? Is he going to get in trouble? Because who in their right mind would think this plan would work, right? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his heart pounding like crazy probably, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son? And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. 
Then his father Isaac said to him, still not believing, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, and he blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of the heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It works. (laughs) Right? Like, like it works. Throughout the story, Isaac is actually seen as a sensual man, one who cares more about his appetite or his physical senses than he does his spiritual ones. It's very similar today to people who care more about uh, money or comfort or sex or pleasure more than the kingdom or like more than their eternal souls. Like this is what Isaac is being painted as, somebody who has no care, no thought about the future. He just wants an immediate pleasure in some ways. Isaac just cares about food. Now, do you know anything, notice anything ironic about the story about Isaac? All right, anyone? Something interesting here. He's a sensual man. He said that over and over and over again. Yet all five of his senses got deceived in this text, Right? He's blind, verse 1 tells us, so he physically cannot see in many ways. His licentiousness and his hedonism has completely deceived him, both physically and spiritually. That sense is dead. He mistakes goat hair for human hair, so he's deceived in his touch, right, which you would think you could at least notice a little bit, but apparently not. He uh, recognizes there's a different smell. He can't smell the smell of his own son, so he gets deceived by smell, Okay, which, like, I don't know if you know this, but, like, people have a distinct smell, right? Like, if you're married, you probably realize that, like, your, your wife or your husband, they, they smell a certain way. Is that awkward? Okay, it's true, though, right? Or in another, another analogy, everybody looked at Natalie, I saw that, right? In another analogy, all right, like, Jake Ridley, one of our elders, he can smell when you're about to get sick. So you can walk in, he'll be like, man, are you sick? He'll be like, no. And then that night you're like puking, okay? It's really, really strange. So there are some people that can smell, and apparently this man cannot, okay? He thought that mutton was venison. Now that's a hard one to see at first, but he keeps saying, get me game, get me game. And then Rebecca said, go get some goats. Game is venison in the scripture. And so literally uh, uh, Esau's out hunting deer with a bow and arrow, and they just go slaughter a goat, and they cook that. There is a difference between the two meats, right? So even his, the food that he loves, his, his senses are being fully deceived there. And then the ironic thing is that he actually heard right, but he couldn't convince himself of this hearing. The one sense that was maybe a little bit alive still deceived him in the end. And so he gets, the sensual man gets deceived by all of his senses. And he gives an astounding blessing to Jacob. Isaac showers this man with a crazy blessing, which we'll get to more in a second. But notice what Jacob does in the midst of this. Look at verse 20 again. It'll be there on the screen as well. Jacob says, your God to Isaac. Jacob firstly literally is blaspheming. He's using the name of God to lie. So he's wanting this blessing, this promise, this, the, to be in the will of God so bad that he's literally willing to blaspheme the name of God to have that happen. But it's further showing not just his character of a liar and his state of where he is, but he doesn't even identify with God. 
says, your God, not our God, not my God. And we see him use this language frequently throughout the scripture. It looks like Jacob is an unbeliever, that he does not yet believe in the Lord and in who he is. Now, one of the kind of cool things is that we're actually going to get to walk on this journey with Jacob toward belief. There is a point where we see him switch and he says, my God, right? And he begins to understand who God is. But as of right now, it doesn't look like he believes, which is actually showing more about Isaac as well because his eldest son doesn't believe, his younger son doesn't believe. And obviously you're not responsible for your children's faith, but you would think that there'd be some sort of a passing down some, something going on there. And there's nothing, Right, So it probably showed more about Isaac's uh, faith as well. Let's keep reading, verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out of the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. I love this verse. As soon as Jacob left, he scarcely came out. Like this is supposed to be like a soap opera, right? It's like the, the really bad like Spanish soap operas, right? It's like, right? And he's gone right at the last second. You see his coattails dragging out, right? And so let's keep going. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of my son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who is it that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh my father. But he said, your brother came in deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He has taken away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all of your brothers, and I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine, and I have sustained him. What thing can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then uh, Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, or shall your dwelling be. And away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Isaac and Esau are distraught, right? Uh, 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 Esau uh, about like yells out this war cry and Isaac essentially has like an ulcer, right? He's like shaking very violently and like screaming out. Both of those words are supposed to invoke in us the most bitter of cries, right? Like, We have been fully deceived, they say. In fact, Isaac's blessing is so great on Jacob that he doesn't even have anything left for the son that he actually loves. Like, he's like, I don't don't have anything for you. And twice we see Esau saying, anything? Just, Just a tiny little blessing. Let me get the crumbs off the table. And he says, your brother's gonna rule over you. You're not gonna get any of the earth. You're gonna die. You're gonna live by the sword. Great blessing, right? We see what Isaac's intention was here. He was willing to forsake the promise of God 
so aggressively that literally he would have nothing left for the actual chosen child. This is how much he can care less about the promise of God that he doesn't even have a blessing left to give. There's nothing else to give to his son. We see how shady they were about to be. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau hated him, and it led to him wanting to kill this man, right? Keep going, verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Apparently, he likes to talk to himself out loud. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. The second time she told him to do that. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Does that happen? Right? Like, like you just forget what happens. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. So here she comes in again about to deceive this man again. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your, bro- your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham uh, to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land uh, of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Armenian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and and Esau's mother." So the ironic thing here is that Rebecca once again tries to deceive. She's already done this. She's succeeded. And now she tries to do it again. And what she thinks is, I'm only going to see you for, like, you're going to be gone for, the text actually says a few days. But the ESV translates it as a little while because we knew it was supposed to be an idiom. So she thinks, hey, for a little bit, like, your brother's going to be mad. And then, like, in a few weeks, a few months, maybe even a year or two, you're going to get to come back. The ironic thing is that Rebecca never sees her son again. He leaves, he's there for two decades, and the only reason he comes back is because she dies. And so she never sees her son again. To some extent, she actually absorbed the curse that was supposed to be given to Jacob. The prophecy that she gave in rashness actually, to some extent, came true, okay? What's astounding here is that this is a story that God will use to bring about the redemption of the world, (laughs) right? Like, like when we say that God can take what is bad and use it for good, like, like this is what we mean, okay? There's nothing good in this story, right? Like, like there's no redemptive value in any way in this story. Like it is negative on top of negative on top of negative, and yet somehow God takes what's bad and uses it for good. Last three verses, let's finish our text. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that he blessed him and he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So now it sounds like Esau's kind of listening in, right? And he hears what's going on. 
and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his, his wife, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of uh, Neboiath. Okay? So this is what happens here. Esau, in his anger and in his sin, instead of responding well, responds in bitterness and in anger. This will lead to unbelievable consequences later, which some of you I know can probably relate to, right? Like, like in your anger, in your bitterness, you say something, you do something that actually carries forth great consequences later. Rather than submitting that sin, rather than laying that down before the Lord, allowing God to reconcile, you try to take matters into your own hands, and you end up bringing curses upon you later. So what does the story tell us, Okay. Well, it tells us several things. For one, there are actually never more than two characters discussing anything at any time together. You only see Isaac and Jacob, or Jacob and Rebekah, or Isaac and Esau, and you never actually see any sort of cross-mingling. Now, this is unbelievably, unprecedentedly absent in all the rest of Hebrew literature. Whenever you see multiple characters, they all kind of interact with each other, at least at some point through the story. But here, there's never more than two characters interacting at once. Why? Because they're a family at war. They're a family that is utterly divided. They're a family that does not care almost at all about the promises of God. The jealousy, the deception, the power struggle is creating this sharp division, this this sharp disagreement. And so an immediate application could be we need to be careful not to do this in our own families or even here in our church family, right? Like, Like to wear a mask like Jacob to try to maneuver something into our favor the way Rebecca did, to ignore God's word and his voice like Isaac did, whatever it may be, we have to be careful not to do things like that. Because as we do things like that, as we consider ourselves more important than our neighbor, instead of our neighbor more important than ourselves, like scripture says, as we lift ourselves up, it does nothing but create division. It does nothing but create a lack of harmony. There is a severing of true relationship. And so we need to be careful not to do things like that. Like, like, please don't do that here, right? Backbiting, slandering, saying something negative about somebody else, not serving somebody else. This does nothing but create disunity. Abraham Kuravilla, a professor at DTS, says this. Nobody wins in a backstabbing, heel-grabbing environment. The consequences are dreadful, and community is splintered, fragmented, shattered, Not only is it dangerous to want what others have been blessed with, it is equally, if not more dangerous, when manipulation becomes the currency of interpersonal interaction. We have to be a community that seeks each other's good, not the good of ourselves. But can we be real for a minute? You cool with that? What are you going to say? No? I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) An even deeper application here is that, like, can't you see some of each of these characters in your own heart? Can't you see some of each of the characters kind of lingering within your own soul in some ways? Like, look at this chart. There's a chart here. I feel it would be easier to see this and to walk through each of the characters individually. But here's what we see in this story, okay? First of all, Isaac and Rebekah, they actually believe in God. We see that very clearly, but they're trying to manufacture God's will. They're not willing to allow him to interact, so they're trying to to work it in some way, shape, or form. Neither of them are willing to submit to the plan, so they take matters into their own hands, which is never good. Esau and Jacob, on the other hand, they don't believe in God, as is evidenced in verse 20, and so they're trying to manipulate God's will. They want the blessing of God without submitting to God. 
They want the blessing of God without submitting to God, right? Like that's similar to people who try to be good people or who try to go to church or who try to do the right things. What they're often seeking is the blessing of God, but they're unwilling to submit to him as God their king. They're unwilling to let them rule in their lives. So they're trying to manipulate God. I want the good from God, but I'm not willing to actually follow God to get that good. Look at their characters of the people here, right? Isaac is sensuous and weak. Rebecca's manipulative and deceptive. Esau is misguided and violent. Jacob is opportunistic and immoral, which all of their characters lead to bad actions throughout the story. And so then there are extreme consequences for each of these actions. Isaac lives without significance. From this story on, you pretty much don't hear Isaac's name ever mentioned again. In fact, out of all the sons, the only promise that's never directly associated, the only son that the promise of God isn't directly given to is Isaac. God directly gives it to Jacob. God directly gives it to Judah, who's another character. God directly gives it to Abraham. But Isaac is almost just left out the picture some. There's anguish. He loses both of his sons. Rebecca dies with literally no reward. In fact, she becomes a literal non-story from this point out. So much so that when Rebecca dies, it doesn't even mention Rebecca. It mentions her maidservant, her midwife. That's how irrelevant Rebecca becomes, right? This woman who a couple chapters earlier was literally the, the prototype of Abraham. Like she left her country. She believed in God. She was willing to walk into the promises of God. She loses faith. She allows the world to slowly but surely unravel her, as we mentioned last week, and she dies without significance, not even a memorial, and she loses her one son that she loves, Jacob, never to see him again. Esau has no inheritance and is always at war, and Jacob is continually taken advantage of throughout his whole life. He's deceived over and over and over again. He's also deceived by his eldest son who comes in and says, your brother has died. He's fleeing Laban left and right. And so all these things are happening here. This is a terrible story. And here are the consequences, right? Now what's happening? They're all believing some sort of lie. There's a contortion of what God is doing. Isaac wants the better son not realizing that God often chooses the weakest amongst us, right? Uh, 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 Rebecca wants to control God's plan, not realizing God knows what he's doing. You don't really gotta control God's plan, friends. He knows what he's doing, right? Uh, Esau, he never seeks God. He dies without ever proclaiming God. So he, he takes matters to his own hands. And Jacob is weak. He lies. He flees. He's always wearing this mask. He, he, he is never actually operating what God has called him to. Friends, this is discouraging, Right? And what is happening here? Well, what's happening here is that we're seeing the same lie that got them in Genesis chapter 3 repeated once again with these characters. Go to that next slide. All of them in the conclusion, which I know is cut off a little bit, but they're not believing in God. What Isaac believes is that God isn't all-knowing. I know what's better. It's my older son that's going to get the blessing. And so he tries to do it in his own hands. He's believing the same lie that Satan deceived Adam and Eve with. Rebecca thinks that God isn't in control. Hey, he doesn't know what he's doing. He, I know he promised this, but it's not coming to be. So, so I'm going to take it into my own hands. I got to do this because God isn't in control, right? Esau literally wants to be his own God in some ways. He never wants to submit to God. He wants to rule over his own life. And that leads to his destruction. And what Jacob thinks is that God isn't good, 
God isn't good enough, so I got to maneuver, I got to manipulate God's will in order to receive it. And they're all wrestling in their own various ways, but here's what is happening. Now listen, friends, I mean, like, can't you kind of relate with some of this? Like, like, can't you see yourself in some of these characters? In fact, can't you see yourself in all of these characters in some ways? We ourselves are broken and shattered, and, and, and to some extent, we're tempted to being broken so much that it feels like there can be no repair. I know even in my own life, what I tend to uh, uh, conclude the most is that God isn't good. I tend to find myself being like Jacob, where I begin to think that, man, the promises of God, what is he doing? And so if I come to church and there's 200 people at church, I'm like, oh, God is good. All the time, all the time, God is good, right? If I come to church and there's 130 people, then I'm like, what is God doing, right? Like, man, I'm being faithful. Like, what's happening? And what do I start doing? I start trying to manipulate the will of God. Why? Because I'm actually immoral and because I actually don't believe that God is good and I'm, I'm contorting all of who God is. I'm believing this lie so we can see ourselves in all of these. Now here's the interesting thing is that all of these characters probably did not think that this moment in history was that big of a deal. And what happens to us is that we tend to think that our misconceptions about God is not that big of a deal. Right, like, like because there's nothing major, because it doesn't feel like the, the promise of God is resting on our shoulders, then we tend to think that the individual choices and the moments of our life, they don't matter a whole lot. But look at how this derailed them. This utterly derailed them to where all their stories are all messed up. Friends, you operating as this can shipwreck your faith. It can shipwreck your faith and leave you like these characters without it in some ways. Or even worse, it can lead to you never seeking God in the first place and being separated and severed from his love forever. All of these are dangerous situations. And so what do we do, right? What, what do we do with this if we see this in ourselves in some ways? This is where we need a character that's better than these characters. This is really where we need a character that's better than human. And instead it's Jesus on the scene thousands of years later. This last slide here, we see that Jesus and his character is actually perfect. He never sins. He is flawless in many ways. And so the consequence of his perfection is actually the kingdom of God. Jesus sits enthroned right now, ruling over all. The enemies are a footstool under his feet. He has all things under his control. He actually gets the reward. What was his contortion? None. He believed full truth about God. And so the conclusion is that Jesus, in a lot of ways, had true faith. Jesus was everything that these characters weren't. Now you may ask, well, how does that help me? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. All right. Hidden in this text is something really, 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 really interesting. Look one more time at verse 13 here. In verse 13, Rebecca says, his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Rebecca wanted Isaac to gain, or Rebecca wanted Jacob to gain the blessing so badly that she was willing to invoke a curse upon herself that he may receive it. Rebecca wanted Jacob to uh, uh, receive the blessing to be in the will of God so badly that she was willing to invoke a curse on herself in order to have him receive it. Does that remind you of anyone? Jesus. The antithesis of Rebecca, the one with true faith, does the exact same thing. Jesus wants you to receive the blessing of God so badly that he is willing to bear the curse of God so that you may receive the blessing. 
He is the true and better, better Rebecca in some ways, right? Because he actually follows the will of God to perfection, but yet he desires you to have that perfection so badly that he takes on our curses for us. This is where the irony of the story comes in. Because even though Jesus' character was perfect, he's treated as the most sinful human being that's ever existed. Even though Jesus consequences the kingdom, he had to go through hell to get it. And his conclusion, even though he had true faith, he died like the sinner of all sinners. Why? Because he was willing to bear the curse that you may be free, friends. All of us operate on this side of this chart. We all have all of these things that are all messed up and all of these contortions and all of these lies that we're believing. And Jesus comes on the scene and wants to replace that for us. He wants to change that in our hearts. He literally wants to change who we are that we may be free. Jesus comes on the scene to save us. These characters are bringing forth the blessing of God. That's scary. But God uses them anyway. And then in comes Jesus who actually fulfills the blessing of God. And so in Jesus, we have our Savior and our example. He's our example in that as we look to him and live like he lives, we begin to operate in who God has made us truly to be. We throw away all these false characters and we enter into the character of Jesus, you know, be holy as I am holy, he says. But he's also our Savior. Because when we do act like Jacob, when we do act like Rebecca, when we do act like Esau, when we act like Isaac, Jesus is able to remove that from us. And friends, as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we look to him, then we're able to operate in his will more and more and more. You say, well, what is the will of God? Let's read this one last verse to finish. John chapter six, verse 40. It says this, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jacob or Esau did not deserve the blessing of God, but one of them got it. You and I do not deserve deserve the blessing of God, but because the will of God is for us to know the God of the universe, because the will of God is for us to be saved, to have a relationship with him, because this is the will of God, then any of us who choose God, any of us who submit to God, we are free. We are free, friends. This story is a story that shows that God can use broken people. And even in our brokenness, as we look to Christ, he's able to mend things together to make us more like him. In Jesus is your satisfaction, friends, and in Jesus is your sanctification. Look to him. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I love you guys. Let's pray. Precious Father, man, yeah, I pray you would do a good work in our hearts, God. That you would do such a work in our hearts that, that we would be able to see you. God, I pray for even those who do not believe in you, even right now, Jesus, who are wrestling with, with doubt, who are wrestling with, with are you real or not. God, I pray that even today you would help them to choose to follow you, God. That they would not be like Esau and, and throw their life away, but that they would submit to you, the king. I pray that they would surrender to your call, Jesus. That they would confess that you are Lord, that you are good, that you are sovereign, that they want you in their lives, that they even pray, even right now, for you to enter into their heart, to make it new. And God, I pray for those of us who do know you, King, 
kill, kill the Isaac in us. Kill the Rebecca in us. Kill the Jacob in us. Kill the Esau in us. Kill us, God, that we may become fully alive in you, Jesus. Help us to see the beauty of who you are more and more and let us lay down our lives that you may be glorified in them. Jesus, I don't want to be like Jacob in this story. I want to be like you. Forgive me when I fall into my Jacob patterns and renew me and make me more and more like you by the power of your Holy Spirit every day. God, help us to be like that. We pray this in your very beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Um, hey, we're going to do two songs at the end instead of three today. Okay, and so um, make sure you take communion quicker if you're waiting for the third song. It's not coming, all right? But we have communion at the four different stations.